Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we travel along the award-winning journalistic trail deep inside the heart of Montana's Missouri River country in search of dinosaur bones and gold. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible lifestyle and travel. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we encourage you to put on your boots and grab a shovel for today's adventure. That's right, dear. Hunting for dinosaur fossils is hard work. We'll explore what it's like to be in the field recovering a triceratops named Carl with paleontologist Dave Trexler of the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum and Field Station. Actually, we have been working on Carl for three years already. I suspect we will be finished with the excavation if we don't find any more uh, next year. Rancher Brenda Koss knows a thing or two about Carl and other dinosaurs found on her family's ranch, including one found by her daughter and tells how you can share that experience. We do it just to try to keep our little community together and bring folks in like this. This is, I think, my favorite part of it. Great Plains Dinosaur Museum director Sue Frary joins us from the field to share her passion for hunting dinosaur fossils as well as some surprising facts about Montana and the age of the dinosaurs. Now, we can get some information. We'll learn a lot about Carl and certainly how he died, what preserved him, what was the environment like that he died in. We'll learn that. But these are these are the these are like hitting a jackpot. Then it's off to Montana's little Rocky Mountains to strike it rich in the quirky gold rush era town of Zortman with the town's colorful John Kalil. You come up here and kinda of lose track of time and and you just fall into the uh, prospecting you well gold fever people call it. <laughs> This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Our search for Carl the Triceratops and other raptors took us to the Koss Family Ranch south of Malta, Montana. Dave Truxler, chief paleontologist of the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Malta, got us started on our search for fossils in the field as we walked through the grasslands of the Koss Ranch. You can find dinosaurs under the grass. And I have several times, but typically they're more difficult to find. So we tend to look in the, the bare patches mostly because that's where they're easiest to see. It doesn't have to be big bare patches. You can see little bare patches all over this area as well. Find something, Courtney? On this piece, you've got this hard outside rim here. You have this spongy pore stuff in there. Um, it's got some nice organized structure to it. <coughs> These pieces are a little more difficult to tell. The hard outside is just there, more spongy there. Um, and this is a nice little fragment. 
it's it's just the the organized structure the the, the lines basically that, that give this one away okay um, bone structure is really nothing more than a bundle of really tiny tubules that are all glued together mm. now how many of you remember from your high school science days or grade school science days capillary action oh yeah capillary action uh, is a pro property of water that uh, water adheres to most surfaces and it will actually exert that force stronger than gravity will pull against it so in a really small tube water will actually pull itself up the tube now since I said dinosaur bone is nothing more uh, than a bundle of small tubules that are glued together if that's preserved under the microscopic uh, method that I described earlier, then those tubules should uh, have this capillary action property. And that leads to something that paleontologists refer to as the lick test. If you put your tongue against a piece of dinosaur bone and hold it for about a count of 10, uh, the bone will probably stick to your tongue. The exceptions are if those tubes are all filled in with uh, you know minerals that have the plug them. Uh, sometimes the porosity of sandstone will also mimic that tube action. So it's not a hundred percent, but it's about eighty percent. However, this is a cow pasture, so I don't really <laughs> recommend people running around and, and licking rocks. <laughs> uh, what you can do is lick your finger and, and hold it against the bone. And again, about a count of ten, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten. You don't want to use uh, the the more porous it is, the less it actually works. Uh, the tubes that that work best are the ones that are on the solid of the surface. Try that. That's a good part. Because what you're doing is the the moisture is creating a vacuum by being pulled away from your skin. And it's that vacuum that oh. actually sticks the bone. There we go. <laughs> Doesn't want to come off. Cool, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. And if you would put those back where you found them. I shall. No. That is a rock called conglomerate, and uh, even more so, it's a shelly conglomerate. Those are fossils you're seeing, but yeah. it's bits and pieces of um, freshwater mussel, clam, oh, whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's mixed in with the the debris that forms. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not bone, but it's close. All right. Well, we found stuff down here. Let's let's trace it uphill and see if we find any more further up this wash. And of course, the grass makes that a little difficult. So you don't want to give up until you get to the the next barrier area. what you imagine dinosaur hunting would be like? Uh, I had an open mind. I, I had an open 
introduction. In fact, I had no idea what to expect on my first dinosaur dig, but finding bones are like putting together the pieces of a huge jigsaw puzzle, and as we would learn from Dave, reconstructing a triceratops like Carl will take a lot of time and patience. Part of one single limb bone. And, uh, you know, all of those pieces could probably be reassembled into the, the single bone. And we would do that if we found the rest of the animal that it went to. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that we do when we're out surveying like this is we look all around any place that you see something like this uh, with the idea of if we find any evidence that more of the animal is here. Uh, we come back, we plant our datum stake, uh, and we collect all of this. And we will take it back to the lab and we will reassemble it hmm. if, if that is, turns out to be something that, that goes to something we're working on. Uh, there, there's about 3,000 hours of somebody's life to put that back together into a the bone that it came from, but you know, if, if you're dealing with the only whatever a source of its type, you know that that's time well spent. So it, it's always that balancing act that we have to to go with. You you really don't want to spend a year and a half of your life putting back together just another duckbill femur that you know there's a hundred of them in museums just you know in, in the Western United States alone, but if it turns out to be a new species and there's only one of them, then it makes it very important. And how do you how do you assess that? I think you say, you know, this You can't yeah. from this piece. Mm -hmm. And that's why this piece is still lying here. Um, what we have to do is we have to find the animal that this piece connects to. Or and something diagnostic like a claw or a tooth. Well, and, and for most of the animals in the, the late Cretaceous, we rely on skull for that I identification. So, you know, if, if we can find the animal's skull here, uh, then then we can do something with it. But And, and like you said, a, a claw, uh, meat-eating remains are very rare in general. So, you know, generally, any time you find a, a claw in association with something that's that's a sign that says it's meat-eater, and by definition, it's rare. So, uh, in all the time we have collect, collected in the two medicine formation, which is where I do most of my work, we have found two small meat-eating dinosaurs and three tyrannosaurid-type meat-eaters uh, out of over 100 dinosaurs that have been found. In this formation, uh, the entire eastern half of Montana has exposures of this at the right elevation. And in all of that, other than T-Rex itself, which has been really heavily collected uh, as a focused event, you know, they, they sent literally hundreds of people out looking for T-Rex remains. And, and we have now about 30 specimens of, of Rex in museum collections. Other than that, though, there are only about a half a dozen 
meat eaters other than T-Rex itself that are known from this entire formation. So, so does that little tile make you more, is that big enough tile to make you more curious about looking for something else? Oh, you bet. Or would you just be like, uh, I need... Th this is one of those signs that say, you know, spend some time looking here. If we saw something sticking out of that hillside, which is, you know, a, a distinct possibility since we've had all this moisture, that's why I brought you here, um, we could very easily have seen a, a new one sticking out of there. That would have been the sign that says, dig here. And until we see something that says, dig here, this will remain because it's still the, the marker that says, look here. problem is other than this pile right here everything we see here is pretty badly scattered which means water probably spread it and this is probably generating the scatter down slow and it very well could be now I've seen bones preserved in, in levels about this high that by the time erosion drops it down looks about like this so um, you know, just as a, a uh, wild guess, this bone was probably preserved in sediment that was somewhere here and it's, it's been eroded down. But at that height, that bank right there would be the level that contained this dinosaur or that bank right there. Uh, you know, at, at worst, the dinosaur was lying right here and this is the last piece that's left. And of course, there's no guarantee that this was a preserved dinosaur. In any of these deposits, we find many, many more isolated bones or pieces of bone than we do articulated animals. Uh, if you think about the prairie today, animal dies out here, it isn't very long and you've got the leg bone over there and an arm over there and, and ribs over there and, and it, it just shattered and scattered across the prairie. And it's usually in that condition that you end up with a, you know, a, a nice spring runoff event that's happened this year, slides all that stuff down in a coulee and, and buries, under, buries it under a pile of mud so you have, you know, one bone or, or three or four bones piled in a pile and nothing else. We find that in the fossil record. That's typical of what you, know, you, you find. The rare event is where you have an animal that got buried just when it died, before it had a chance to have its body separated and scattered. So uh, it, it's not typically what you would see on TV where you walk out on the prairie and here's a skeleton there and there's one over there. Uh, what you see on those programs is actually the best of most of our lifetime's work. I, I complained to uh, uh, a documentary producer a, a while back and said, you know, why don't you picture the, the real method, the, the real experience? You know, show the 
you know, walking around for days and finding a single fragment like this, or pile of fragments like this, uh, shows us, you know, the, the months of work on a single quarry that turns out to be, you know, most of the carcass except the diagnostic parts. And the guy looked at me and he said, oh, that would be a big hit. We'll broadcast for a half hour today watching people poke in the ground and finding nothing. And then at the end we'll say, tune in tomorrow and we'll do it again. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so what, what usually drives those programs is the unusual discovery. Uh, unfortunately, most of the research that actually contributes to our human existence, the, the stuff that tells us about events we're seeing today or the events we may fe uh, face in the future. Uh, those pieces of information come from sites like this, come from evaluating each of these layers and putting together an, you know, the, a picture of what exactly was happening on Earth at that snapshot in time and doing it again in the next layer up. It is the setting out here for months at a time. It is the, the digging and, and finding nothing because a negative result is quite often just as good as a positive result for interpreting what actually happened here and you know it's not as glamorous as, as what it is pictured at a lot of times but on the other hand it is so rewarding uh, you you get that experience a bit after lunch today digging in the ground because it doesn't matter if you're just removing the, the layers of uh, matrix or you're uncovering the fossil itself, uh, the cool thing is you know that what you are seeing was deposited here back when the dinosaurs were here and nobody, but nobody except you has ever seen that before. And everything you find by definition is brand new. So that's, that's one of the, the cool things about what we do. I'm not out here to start a, a debate over creation versus evolution or long versus short geologic time or anything. Everyone's entitled to an opinion. And science and religion at that point are both philosophy. The dates that I provide you from a scientific background are developed from the concept that present processes and events going on today are what produced everything we see here in the rock and fossil record. And uh, if we use that starting point, I can give you a date. Uh, if we use the starting point that God came here 5,000 years ago and, and waved his hand and it was here, I can give you a starting, I can give you a, a, a date. What I can't do is use data from either one of those starting points to prove or disprove the correctness of the other one. Uh, there are two different ways of looking at the same observed data. And so I, I try not to cause anybody great heartache. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, uh, this uh, Hell Creek formation started being laid down in this part of the country about 68 million years ago and continued up to the KT boundary, which was 64.7 million years ago. So somewhere between 68 and 64.7 represents its entire layer. Now, unlike marine formations where we can actually measure thickness and say, you know, this is deposited uniformly over 
roughly halfway up. So this was probably deposited somewhere, you know, 66 million years before present, give or take a day or two. Field work is more than just digging for bones. It requires some precise surveying of fossil fields with the help of some very high-tech tools. Everything we collect out here is documented uh, relative to a single point called the datum state. And it's a permanent marker. We leave the, the state here forever. And the idea is uh, if a scientist 100 years from now wants to come back and examine what we did, uh, he or she should be able to do so. And what we're shooting off of the, the datum stake is distance, direction, and elevation and depression from that point. The prism pole and prism we're using is exactly the same height as the distance from that stake to the center of this machine. So when we push the button and it does all the measurement, it's just like we're shooting the measurement off the top of that stake itself. And, and, and just to give our, our audience a visual, this is really survey equipment that we see on the, the streets or, you know... Oh, yes, yes. We, we use a standard Topcon total station. Uh, I've, I've used some of the other makes, uh, Nikon and, and uh, Sokia as well. But, yes, it's standard survey equipment. So I think, you know, to the the average person, um, and certainly I include myself and, and Ian in that category, you know, this um, this work, this type of work, what you guys are doing is so much more detailed than just digging, uh, digging a hole and finding bones. I mean, there's so much more to this. Uh, there is, because what we want to learn is why each piece is where it is. That's what tells us a lot of what we need to know to put together that snapshot in time that is actually the ultimate goal for any site work we do. We want to be able to understand exactly what was going on. You know, Was it uh, uh, a slow-moving stream deposit or a lake or was it an ancient soil horizon? And little things like uh, the direction in which bones are pointed, the angle at which they are lying in the ground, the uh, relative position of one type of fossil in relation to another, all add to the information we need to create that mm -hmm. reconstruction. And of course, we need each of those reconstructions in turn to create enough snapshots to give us a picture of an overall trend during any particular period. Mm -hmm. so. And so the work you're doing on Carl actually, you know, and realist, um, uh, realistically could take a couple of years and not, you know, uh, 30 minutes as appears on some documentaries. Actually, we have been working on Carl for three years already. I suspect we will be finished with the excavation if we don't find any more. Uh, next year and then it'll take us somewhere between five and ten years of fairly strenuous work in the lab to put everything back together. There was an animal that was just uh, released as a new species reported in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology last week called Acristavus gagslarsoni. That specimen was actually found in the 1990s. It's just taken this long to 
put everything back together and, and get it ready for publication. Most of the sites we work on have that sort of a lag time. There's just a lot of work between the time it's discovered and the time it's usable. Coming up, the joy of sharing with Brenda Cost. We do it just to try to keep our little community together and bring folks in like this. This is, I think, my favorite part of it. And discovery with Sue Frary. Now, we can get some information. We'll learn a lot about Carl and certainly how he died, what preserved him, what was the environment like that he died in. We'll learn that. But these are, these are the, these are like hitting the jackpot. As we continue in search of Carl, the Triceratops, and other raptors, as World Footprints continues from eastern Montana. I'm Courtney Moles. I am with Silco Economic Growth Council in Malta, Montana. I am a transplant from New Orleans, and Montana is a beautiful state. Uh, listen to World Footprints Radio. If you're like most Americans, you feel miserable in your job, then take control of your future. Visit careaboutyourfuture.com and discover a surefire way to tap into the power of the Internet and generate unlimited profit. Generate sales commissions on products that you never even create. See why this powerful system can start generating a massive amount of income and learn how to harness the power of the Internet that will change your life. Go to careaboutyourfuture.com. Hi, I'm Carla Huntsley with Missouri River Country, and I live in Fort Peck, Montana. And I'd like to have you all come out and see what a beautiful state we have. And the northeast corner of Montana is just a wonderful place. And listen to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. During our day digging for Carl, we met Brenda Koss, whose family ranch is not only Carl's resting place, but the place of several significant dinosaur discoveries, including one by her daughter, Kennedy. We found it when she was four. So that was three years ago when they first came out. So that was kind of exciting. It was pretty much almost all intact. The, um, there's a piece missing on the back of the horn and off the tip of it where um, it looks like some meat-eating dinosaur had bit it off. So you, they can see the teeth marks in it also. Yeah, so. <laughs> it is, she is an excited little girl. It's so we, She named it the Kennedy dinosaur. So she has her own dinosaur, which is so cool. Where is it now? It is, it's, no, it's in the museum. We donate it back in town. Everything that we find, what are we going to do with it? I mean, we don't do what we do because it's definitely not money profitable. <laughs> and neither is trying to feed the nation. But uh, we do it just to try to keep our little community together and bring folks in like this. This is, I think, my favorite part of it is meeting people from different states and different walks of life and getting to know people, even though I'm really secluded and don't like those neighbors always showing up. <laughs> Not quite so used to that. Well, earlier when I said you know, we always we had people stopping by the townhouse to see the house and see what was going on, and most of it was our neighbors from out here. <laughs> wondering 
how everything was going and making sure the kids really enjoyed school and which is the best part of it all. So how close is your nearest neighbor? Actually, the last, I think they've maybe been up here five years, there's a young couple, uh, the Weedricks, and they're only about two miles as the crow flies from our house down the road here. But before that, our nearest neighbor was where you turned at the T down there, that new house, and there's the mailbox that says French's. That was our nearest neighbor. So is this your place that we came right by? That is, it is another cost, but that's my husband's great uncle's place. And we are all related out here somehow, either by marriage or... <laughs> so we're not just neighbors, we're actually family. Exactly. <laughs> My husband always uh, teases me that he had to marry me. I was the only one he wasn't related to in town. So. The conversations and camaraderie from being part of a dinosaur dig is a big part of the fun of being in the field. It gives an entirely new meaning to mudslinging. Yeah. This is a completely different from the concrete jungle. Yeah. Can I put that on a shirt, Ian? Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> okay. Now, Brenda, we're on your ranch, and um, from the walk for, uh, from the walk we did today is quite an extensive ranch. And um, my understanding is that you had a hunter on land who actually discovered what we're digging up today. Can you tell us about that? Yes, we uh, allow open hunting. Uh, through the Fish Wildlife Park Service and we had a hunter come to the door and say did you know you had a dinosaur on your place and my husband and I looked at each other like what the heck does a dinosaur look like so we went out and he showed us where it was shimmering up from underneath the ground and we I took a couple pieces into town to the paleontologist at the moment and he kind of poo-pooed me and said it looks like a duck bill see you later and so we really didn't do anything until a friend of ours that was with the dinosaur museum come to us and say we have a new paleontologist that would like to come out and we talked it over and said sure what the heck come on out so they came out and the first day that they came out they found I don't know many sites of where the bones were coming out which we had no clue and so it just escalated from there and and who we're digging up today his name is Carl um, named after the person who who found him I understand how is it opening up your 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 home really uh, to different people from the hunters to other paleontologists uh, who are you know, digging through your land. How is that for you? We really like to share. We like to share what we've got. Um, we live in God's country. I mean, they don't call it big sky country for nothing. You can see as far as the eye can see. And we enjoy, we enjoy meeting new people from all walks of life. You know, whatever you do, whatever you, you know, Mon Montana is basically the door is always open. And come on in, have you had a meal? So, you know, we're just, we are very inviting people and share what we get to experience every day. And for any listener who's interested in doing what we're doing today, how would they 
who would they contact in order to participate in a dinosaur dig on your property? They would contact uh, our local museum in town. As Brenda said, these dig programs can be arranged through the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Malta, Montana. Sue Freire, the museum's director, joined us in the field, and as Ian and I discovered, her passion and joy for discovery is contagious. You can see it almost looks like agate or mm -hmm. some kind of um, oh. highly polished something. Yeah. Yeah. And then like this, this is a little piece. Uh, and where do these things um, come from? I mean, are, are they washed down with See, rain? Or? Well, no, what they are is this is a little area where the stream, all the stuff, all the little pebbles, all, you know, have you been by a river or mm -hmm. by the coast, and you'll have a little pile of seashells. Mm -hmm. Like, they all just sort of washed in a certain spot and all piled up. And that's sort of one of these places. Okay. And so when it rains, they kind of drain out of this bank, and they flow out over this white and then we just sit here sometimes when we're tired or, you know, and just start picking up little things. And we'll have little pieces of teeth, you know, like that's little dinosaur teeth. We'll find little, tri you know, little pieces of, um, I find little pieces of claws and, you know, um, you know. But it's, it's fun. It's actually very zen. I mean, you can just really get into just sitting quietly mm -hmm. and just picking up little little things. You can find scales of fish, all the old scales that fell off all the fish. For me personally, I love these little sites because they tell us so much more about the environment back then than mm -hmm. a large old honking one species dinosaur sitting over there. Mm -hmm. You know, here we can find crocodile teeth and we'll find little vertebrae of little fish and we'll even find little salamander teeth and we'll and they're just so cute and little <laughs> crocodile and you'll find little crocodile teeth and and little um you know it's just sitting so sometimes you you come and just sit or take a yeah, break from take a break and just sit here and start finding things mm -hmm. and we actually named this spot is called the Kelly Koss microsite, and it's named after Kevin's dad, Paul's brother, um, who's the guy who died here a few years ago. But anyway, oh, we'll see, like right here. Yeah. Oh, you know. Um, oh, and actually, that's just a sandstone. So, but that most likely would have been a little piece of dinosaur bone. Um, but they're. What we can find in these types of sites is a multitude of animals, multitude mm -hmm. of plants. Mm -hmm. Evidence of huge amount of information can come from just right in here. Now, we can get some information. We'll learn a lot about Carl and certainly how he died, what preserved him, what was the environment like that he died in. We'll learn that. But these are these are the these are like hitting a jackpot. <laughs> now, what type of uh, what was Carl's species? He was a Triceratops. Those ones with three horns, okay. two big horns here, and a little nose horn, and a big frill that came on the back, and they almost looked like rhinos, uh, four-legged. Um, they lived with T-Rex. T-Rex preyed upon them. They were trying to get away from T-Rex. 
And how have you been able to determine what species he is? Oh, you know, because that's a good question. On the top of the surface, what was first identified uh, was his horns. Ah. They, they have a certain pattern of bone that is very recognizable. Mm-hmm. You just, because it looks like a horn, you know, and it hasn't changed much. And that was what was first seen um, oh, okay. on the surface. That's a good question. Okay. And then also one of his long leg bones was, was kind of laying on top, too. Okay. And then we thought, well, that's all. <laughs> so we started digging, and of course, you know, kept finding more and more and more. And, you know, he's sort of a never-ending, never-ending triceratops. <laughs> So you've actually um, removed some of the, the the fossils that you found here, and uh, this is another piece, and he's not still intact. No, there he's disarticulated. He's he's discombobulated. He's torn apart. Mm. Um, most animals are that way. Uh, you know, think about it. You know, you find a dead animal on the field. You know the coyotes come in, the dogs come in, whatever, badgers, they tear it apart, foxes, tear it apart, raccoons, you know, tear it apart. Pretty soon you go back out and ribs are over there and heads over there and like, sort of like the scarecrow mm-hmm. in The Wizard of Oz. He just gets torn apart. Mm-hmm. And so then those bones, perhaps, perhaps not, become covered and become fossilized. And so when you find them, they're scattered. It's very rare to find uh, animals fully articulated, you know, lying like they did, you know, lying their dead as they did in life. In our area, uh, this part of Montana and southern Alberta, we have the highest degree of fully articulated animals than anywhere in the world. Goodness. You know, you saw Roberta, you know, you 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 know, next door we have Elvis. Mm -hmm. Um, Our animals quite often are laying there. At least parts of them still butted up and lined, like lining up mm-hmm. the way they did in life, uh, because of, because of the huge one theory is the huge storms that were generated off that inland sea, proper things like bowling ball, and buried them promptly, quickly, deeply, and never gave those scavengers time to tear them apart. You know, they didn't lie idle on the field for very long. So that we were grateful to those storms. I mean, everything we, we have here, we really owe to being on the coast of the sea. <laughs> and that sand, too, holds everything together really well. You know, you get buried in sand, you can't move. Right. It just holds everything together. It's wonderful. So given that we find crocodiles, fish, and maybe species that we would associate with warm parts of our planet today. What does that tell us about what the climate was like here? Oh, yeah. Oh, very, very Everglades. It was much like southern Louisiana, really delta, lush, warm, humid, lots of moss, algaes, you know, um, uh, very tropical, uh, very swampish, actually. Uh, and, you know, this was really lowlands. I mean, we were really considered sort of low here. So uh, much like the Everglades, a lot like Florida today. Mm. That would probably amaze most people, just to think oh, of Montana. I know. Of how we conceive it today, but to think of it then as like the Everglades. Ever, just like the Everglades. I know, and it's so hard. It is hard. To, it's hard to picture, and it's hard to believe, because you're out here, it's arid. 
you know, we 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 are a you know a prairie basically, so we're used to droughts, uh, that type of climate now. But it wasn't that way then, and actually. Uh, once the climate started to change and the animals started to disappear, you know their numbers were dwindling. Certainly, the the, uh, the there was a meteor impact, but that just sort of wiped out the last of them. They were already on their way out, mm -hmm. and largely due to the climate changing, grasses came onto the scene. Grasses, grass. Who could eat grass? Dinosaurs looking at that, thinking, "What? What can I do with that? I can't <laughs> eat that." Right? Well, no, no, they they were eating ferns and different types of flowering plants. To digest grass requires uh, bacteria. Requires a whole different, hmm. you know, um, stomachs and and teeth mm -hmm. uh, for grinding. You know, I mean, it it has. You have to be fully. You know, you have to adapt to being able to eat grass. And so no dinosaur could eat that. No dinosaur could eat grass. Grass was was uh, really new. You know, I, I, I would imagine some people listening to us talk today um, are thinking, really, where are these guys? Because it would surprise a lot of people to even think of Montana as a state where you can find dinosaur fossils. It's wonderful. It's amazing. You know, we can time travel here. Uh, we we are so lucky that the layers that show up on the surface of our area here really quite literally are the same layers that the dinosaurs were walking on. So when you're walking on around here, you are really walking on the same. You're walking on the same beach that dinosaur walked on right here. Mm -hmm. You are. Now, you know, the... You know, it, it may look a little different. The plants certainly are different and everything like that. But we're walking on a prehistoric beach. Mm. And it is. It's a great surprise. But fossils have been taken out of Montana for over 120 years. You know, the first expeditions were in 1876. You know? Yeah. We're really lucky to, you know, we hang on to every single one of them we can. And, you know, this... Um, you know, this is definitely a completely different environment than you saw up at the Hammonds last summer when mm -hmm. you were in the Judith. Can you tell it looks different? Yes. A little more lunar. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, it's 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 a little bit more lunar landscape mm -hmm. kind of a thing. It's not that, um, it's a little harsher. Mm-hmm. You know, the Judith is gray and sandy and everything's yeah. buried in sand, and these things are, you know, are, uh, are in some pretty tough rock. Some of them, a lot of them. But it's just definitely beautiful. Talk yeah, a little sure. bit about the Great Plains Museum and sure. what you guys are doing there. Sure. The Great Plains Dinosaur Museum has been in operation for three years. Five years for, before that, we had the Dinosaur Field Station, which was basically a prep lab, which is where we were bringing the critters and the fossils and mm -hmm. uh, working on them there. And we did have it open to the public, uh, but we didn't have any room in there to display anything. Uh, you just basically toured our laboratory. Uh, so then the state got it together a little bit to grant us the beginnings of a, of a museum. Um, this is the first phase that's, um, uh, that you see up there now. But um, basically, the mission of the museum is to keep the fossils into Montana and to provide uh, a resource then an economic resource to the community, educational opportunities to the locals and to the public at large. So we allow any kid, any scientist, 
to study our fossils, to publish on them. Um, a high school student could be working there studying something right next door, sitting next to a PhD from wherever. You know, mm -hmm. it it's an open door. It's uh, facility. It's autonomous. It works with all museums and all scientists. All you have to do is submit a research proposal, mm -hmm. uh, and it's reviewed and granted normally. And that's great. And it doesn't happen often. And then to participate in a dinosaur dig program that that you organize. Yeah, we d yeah we um the programs then the summer programs are great. We have a junior paleontology program that's offered from from kids five to uh, about 12. Oh. And then at age 11, um, you can join the adult field program, which is basically what you guys are on today. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those are also uh, arranged then through the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum. Um, those programs are overseen by Dave Trexler. And uh, the children's programs are fantastic. It's a miniature expedition. They go out into the field. A smaller version of all of this. Mm -hmm. They have to have a backpack. They have to. They have to know everything. They learn to use a compass. They, they, they know what to do then when they spot bones. They know how to handle things. They, they recognize if it, if a bone is alone or is it articulated with another bone. Is it butting up against something else? They learn everything, and they have a a, a three-hour mini. Hmm. Expedition that cross a little stream. <laughs> you know, they. I mean, it, it, it is. So they have to do all that, and then we have an in-house program too, which teaches them uh, everything from preparation to research how we can play this. Now, see, so many of the discoveries that you make here in the field make their way into natural science museums and exhibitions all over. Are people connecting where those uh, finds are being made here in Montana and when yeah. they get Well, gosh, I hope so. I really do. You know, it, it, more and more people do want to see the bones in the context of the land that they come from. You know, it's wonderful when you can go to a big city and look in there and you see a fossil and you can read down and say, oh, it's from Montana. However, if you can come to Montana and you can see these badlands and get into these incredible places and you have a whole other understanding, a deeper sense of how the animals lived, how they died, and, and then the land today and what's happening with it, it uh, I think it'll make you also appreciate what uh, people go through to, to really to find them, get them out of the ground. Uh, and clean them like we were talking, how much time it involves with that, and then the research. So it's a huge endeavor, a huge endeavor. We don't dig up everything we find, but we're pretty picky. <laughs> you know, you want to make sure it's worth it. You know, in this case, Carl is definitely worth it. Um, but it's definitely, I don't know if people really in cities really can conceive of the environment. Now that we've finished digging on the Coss Ranch here in eastern Montana, we'll go westward to Zortman, Montana, where we'll go panning for gold. 
you come up here and kind of lose track of time and, and you just fall into the uh, prospecting, you, well, gold fever, people call it. <laughs> Next on World Footprints Radio from Eastern Montana. Hi, I'm Carl Mann, Port Peck, Montana. I'd like to invite you here. It's a beautiful place, hunting, fishing, summer playhouse theater. I'd like you to listen to World Footprints. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Attention Shutterbugs. If you have some great travel photographs in your collection, enter them today in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest for a chance to win great prizes. It's free and easy. All you have to do is like us on Facebook. There are two ways to access the contest through our World Footprints Media Facebook page, or you can link to the contest from our website at worldfootprints.com. Voting for the best travel picks will commence after the contest entry date has closed, and winners will be announced soon thereafter. So hurry, because the chance to enter closes soon. Hi, I'm Tia from Montana, and I love World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. I'm in one of the most unusual places uh, we've ever taken the show. Zortman, Montana, here in Montana River Country, about 50 miles south of Malta, Montana. Now, there are places that are just plain weird. Well, Zortman, Montana is a place where there are no paved roads. It's all dirt and gravel right here in the heart of the town where the Zortman Motel uh, pairs up with the garage. And the Miners Club Cafe, a place where we've enjoyed a few meals here for dinner and for breakfast, is a pretty raucous uh, town bar that attracts visitors and locals all over and let me tell you they know how to have a good time here in Zortman. Zortman is one of the places where if you really want to get a feel for what the Wild West was like you come to Zortman, Montana. This was a place that people came to make their fortune way back when looking for gold and that's one of the things that brings us to Zortman today. The sign in front of the Zortman Motel reads, Welcome to Zortman, the friendliest small town in Montana. Population 50, 48 nice people and two grouches. I'm here in the heart of Zortman, Montana with John Kalal. His wife owns the Zortman Motel and Garage. Now, John, where do you get the idea for a motel and garage? Well, my dad taught me how to be a mechanic when I was younger, was always working on junkers, and still am, mm-hmm. and uh, well there was, every time we turned around somebody was knocking a hole in their oil pan, gas pan, we just having flat tires, mm-hmm. started out fixing tires by hand, now we're got tire machine, and just fixed a gas tank the other day, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of, of mechanic and left to do around here. <coughs> There's uh, Candy's other husband. 
<laughs> now, explain to visitors to Zortman who would stay at the Zortman Motel how how uh, mechanics and you know folks get into the innkeeping business because you have a pretty nice place here. Although it might surprise some that this is a motel. My dad built this. Well, I built it with him when I got out of the service, and and he had the great idea of putting motel rooms and we, the first two rooms are down here and uh, after we bought it uh, from my dad and mom we put four more upstairs and got we got uh, four more going in later mm. and just little by little we build on now how long have you lived in Zortman all my life all your life now I'm 39 now, to an outsider, <laughs> you're a very young 39, if I may say so. <laughs> to an outsider like myself, I look at Zortman, and I don't know what I'm supposed to think. So tell us what the outside world can come to expect when they come to Zortman, because you've got gold panning, historic sites, but this is kind of a throwback place. You get, you get away from the modernization of outside world. You kind of forget about what's going on on the outside world you come up here and kind of lose track of time and and you just fall into the uh, prospecting you well gold fever people call it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then uh, after you find out you can't really make a living in, in gold prospecting unless you use machinery uh, then you uh, end up just doing odd jobs working around that's where I come in for candy. I, I'm her uh, uh, gopher, hired hand. I go fix this and I go fix that. Now, you're a jack of all trades, and how many of those have you mastered? <laughs> None. <laughs> but sometimes I have to re redo things. <laughs> and I'm no carpenter, I found out. So we do have carpenters come up and help me out. Now, Zortman uh, may or may not be necessarily the first place on someone's map, but you've, you've got to take some dirt roads here, so it's, it's kind of off the beaten path, but once you get here, there are things to do, uh, places to see, uh, people to visit. Oh, the bird watching is fantastic up here. There's, this is one of three places that they have the crossbill thrush, they call it, and the reason is, is uh, the, this bird competes with the uh, squirrels and stuff, and we have no squirrels. All we have is chipmunks up here, and they don't eat the same things as these crossbill thrush. So we have them. It's very, they're they're very unique bird. <coughs> and then uh, we have mm, basically all kinds of birds. We even get hummingbirds up here. Hmm. And one thing we get a lot of is hummingbird moths. Hummingbird moths. Moths. They look just like a hummingbird, but they're a moth. Okay. And they got, they do this. They go to the same flowers and everything as a, a hummingbird. They like the red flowers. And, and then there's a wild. I don't know what type of flower it is, but they. That's how we found out about them. Is that they was on those flowers and I thought, boy, those look like hummingbirds. They flutter around. And then when they stopped, you could see it was a moth. And they, they have a long, uh, uh, but it, it extends out. It's this. And it's pretty cool to see. And uh, but it's been such a cool summer. We haven't seen only but one or two this summer. Mm -hmm. Been too cool this 
here. Usually when it's real hot out. Now, you mentioned gold panning here, and people have this notion that they can come to Zortman uh, to get rich, particularly now that gold is at 1800 bucks an ounce. Uh, but what's, what's uh, really the reality about coming to Zortman to get rich? Okay, the reality is it's, it's just for uh, recreation. Okay. That's the reality. A lot of people have dollar signs in their eyes, you know. <laughs> and they they come up here expecting to get rich, and then when they don't, they just all they're finding is flex and dust. They don't realize how hard a work it really is, how deep you have to dig into the creek to uh, find the gold and stuff. And and like I say, it takes machinery really to make a uh, make it go. And so I take my backhoe up there and dig for the guys that uh, come stay with us. We use it as kind of a. Uh, otherwise, our business would probably be down in the hole there <laughs> if, if we didn't have gold pan and <laughs> they uh, come and stay with us and go free of charge up on our claim. Ah, ah. Well, we're going to experience gold panning. Uh, what do we have to look forward to? I mean, is is there a real art to this or is it just yes. about uh, kind of going with the flow? There is an art to it, but it's real easy to catch on to after about your third pan and you, you see how uh, gold drops, it's, see it's 19 times heavier than water. So lead, if you've handled lead, it's le uh, 7 to 11 times heavier than water. So gold is almost twice as heavy as lead, or it is in some cases twice as heavy. And you get your semi-precious stones like garnets and uh, topazes and, and stuff like that up here. And they, they're like 6 to 7 times heavier than water and they drop. And uh, then you've got your sinner's gold, fool's gold. Mm -hmm. Iron pyrite. Okay, that's about your next heaviest metal uh, ma material in there, and that drops in there. But you got your black and white sands. What you got to look for? If you get your black and white sands, the white is quartz, and the black is magnetite. And if you got them, you know you're close to gold. Mm -hmm. Then there's fluorite, roscolite, emeraldite, all of those types of minerals with the quartz and stuff. That uh, I'll show you uh, what we have here in a little bit. In any way, if you have all that stuff, you know you're close to gold. And you didn't lose any if you got your garnets and topaz and rubies left in there. You didn't lose nothing. John Kalau, thank you for being with us on World Footprints Radio. Well, thank you for interviewing me. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report of the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter and receive updates about our travel news, contests, and we have one going on right now, and, of course, prize giveaways. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with